This is Kyle Hebert, the voice of Ryu from Street Fighter. The answer lies in the heart of battle. And you're listening to the Happy Haven Hadouken! Hey guys, we're back with another episode. This is Gnarly Canary coming at you from the Happy Haven Podcast. As always with me is... The Geek Steps here. How are you guys doing today? What's up, guys? And today we have Josh Diekman. Yeah. Woo-hoo! <laughs> you didn't order my name. Yes. No problem. Hey, look, I grew up with a name like Canary. I, I've learned the, the nuances of a tricky last name. Most people call <laughs> me Cannery when they first meet me. Wow. It's all right. I got called Motez my entire life. My last name is Motes. And, Motes? Yeah, Motes. <laughs> so, uh, through football and all that down in Texas, I was like, hey, Motez. Oh, you just stop cracking him after take-off. a while. Yeah. That's funny. Or called Stefan. So, so co- right. Mm-hmm. So, correct us if, if we're wrong. Uh, did you do work on the... Uh, on on um, did you work with harmonics before? No. Oh okay. well, then there's somebody with your name with the exact same spelling who has actually worked on video games. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Do no, uh, I can't. I can't say that I've had any experience um, working on a game. Now I've played lots of games, and <laughs> as you guys can see behind me, I've got lots of games. Um. But no, I did not. That that wasn't me. That was uh, someone else. That apparently, I'm going to need to look up now. There you go. Cool. <laughs> Good to know. No, so my, tell me. Uh, go ahead, sir. I was going to say my thing is um, I'm doing a project where I'm attempting to collect, play, and review every licensed U.S. Game Boy game. Wow! Oh, wow! That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That is a so, uh, that's a large undertaking. Yeah, so that is a mountain to climb, dude. Yeah, it is. It is a large undertaking. It's not. Uh, it's at, right now at my count. It's like five hundred six games that are dude. licensed. Jeez. So where are you? So is this start? Game Boy or Game Boy Color or just the the original, the original Game Boy? Original Game Boy. Yep. Man, where where are you going to start at? Well. Um, I've been doing it now for a couple of years. I, I, I don't have as many reviews done as I'd like because, of course, you know, real life gets in the way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, full-time mm-hmm. job and all that sort of thing. But um, I actually, the first game I reviewed was the uh, Donkey Kong Game Boy game. Yeah. And so, of course, you know, you got that game has the original four levels that were in the arcade game. Uh, right. And Nintendo kind of flips the script when you get to the end of that. And then there's like another hundred levels or whatever that you get a play through, kind of in that style, but with some additional mechanics that they've added and, and things like that. Um, Super Game Boy support, so you've got, you know, more palettes and cool stuff like that and uh, additional sound effects and whatnot when you use it on the Super Game Boy. Wow, the Super Game Boy. I haven't thought of that in forever. <laughs> yeah. So actually it's a really, really good game, highly recommended. Cool. Yeah. But my most uh, my most recent review I did was for Link's Awakening. Um, mm-hmm. 
and as I explained in the review, you know, I, uh, I actually bought Link's Awakening DX for the Game Boy Color as a new release when I first got my GBC, and um, I never was a Zelda kid growing up. Um, you know, I didn't have the, the NES console because my family had one TV uh, until I was like 13, 14, and my parents told me that I could not own a game console because I would monopolize the TV. And they were absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and absolutely. so um, my first game system that I had was the Game Boy. Um, and awesome. uh, I had that for a couple of years and, and, um, and then sold that and all my games stupidly uh, to buy a Sega Genesis, which I still love and I still have my original Model 1 today. But wow. all my friends had NES consoles. And so when I'd go over to their houses after school or go do sleepovers or whatever, we'd always play NES games all the time. So I got to experience a lot of the great games from the original NES library through my friends. Uh, and a couple of them had Legend of Zelda. But, of course, that's not a co-op game. And it's a game that you got to sit down and dedicate a lot of time to. So I never became a Zelda guy because, I, you know, we were always playing Double Dragon, Super Mario Brothers, you know, TMNT2, the arcade game. And, oh, you know, I love that stick. game. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and so we were playing game. stuff like that or like Tetris or whatever. And so I, I never really got exposed to Zelda as a kid. So years later, when I got the Link's Awakening DX for the GBC, I didn't really know what to expect other than it's an adventure game. Right. I kind of got into it. I started playing it, and I didn't get it, and it didn't click with me. And so I just kind of put it back in the box and on the shelf, and and it sat relatively ignored for a long time. And uh, a few years later, my brother-in-law had the N64, and I got to play Ocarina of Time, and actually quite enjoyed that, uh, but I didn't get to spend a lot of enough time with it to really get the full appreciation. And right. so last year, um, a website that I write for, um, they do like a monthly playthrough of different games. And one month they did um, le- uh, the original Legend of Zelda. And so I told myself, I'm going to play this game finally for the first time, really, you know, more than just messing around with it for a few minutes mm-hmm. and really dig into it. And, um, I finally, it finally clicked with me as to what everyone sees in the whole Zelda series and why it's such a classic. And so right. I, I was kind of live tweeting, you know, part of my experience with the game and, and stuff like that. And so, um, here just a few weeks ago, I was playing through, uh, Link, the original Link's Awakening, not the DX mm-hmm. version, since I'm only doing original Game Boy releases. And again, I was kind of live tweeting, you know, taking pictures with my phone and live tweeting the experience of playing through Link's Awakening and, uh, you know, just kind of sharing that with Twitter followers and, and so forth and really enjoying that. And uh, uh, I finally get it. And so I'm happy to say that I'm, I'm, I'm finally a Legend of Zelda fan. And so now with the, the Switch forthcoming, I'm actually really looking forward to um, getting and digging into Breath of the Wild. Yeah, Breath of the Wild looks amazing. The The world looks awesome. The graphics, of course, look phenomenal. I can't wait to get a hold of it yeah. and see what they do with it. it. It looks like it's going to be a home run. I'm glad it's launching with the console. It's going to be, it's going to be a good time. Oh, yeah. I'm I mean, going to wait. 
I, <laughs> if I could find one to buy the day it came out, I would be there True and I would too. buy it. I tried. I tried all over town. I've tried in other towns around me. Nobody's got one. Everybody's sold out of their pre-orders here. It's ridiculous. Well, haven't you heard Nintendo doesn't like money and they don't like yeah. standard controllers? I just, I just read <laughs> that apparently the, uh, the GameStops are going to have a few consoles for walk-ins. Yep. So if really? Because you, you most retailers are like for days. You yeah. Might be able yeah. to get your hands on one. Maybe. I've heard a lot yeah. of full, like big retailers complaining that they only got like maybe thirty slots for pre-orders, and they've been given no word on on uh, walk-in copies. That's why I was making the joke that apparently Nintendo doesn't like you know money. But <laughs> I, I I was a Nintendo kid growing up, and pretty much after the GameCube, I fell off with them. Um, you know, I had a PlayStation and a GameCube at the same time, and then Nintendo went a different direction than me as I was getting older, which, I mean, if that's their business model, I understand. Yeah. But I became much more of a serious gamer as I got older in my teens and in my 20s and kind of stuck with Sony. I have an Xbox One this time. But, you know, we have a Wii for the kid, and I've tried it a couple times, and I just cannot get a feel for it. That controller confounds and confusticates me every time I try to play a game. But, like, for you, my experience was backwards. My dad didn't want me to have a Nintendo, and I had a grandma who obviously liked to stick it to him because she bought me one when I was five. But I couldn't get my hands on a Game Boy. I got the console, but I could not get a Game Boy. And I ended up buying one off the kid across the street um, when he was going to high school because he was like, well, this is like a kid's toy now. And he sold me a Game Boy for, like, five bucks with Tetris at a yard sale. And my fondest memory of the Game Boy is my dad, who says he didn't like video games, but I know I heard Mighty Bomb Jack playing while I was supposed to be in bed when I was a kid. Um, we used to play uh, Bases Loaded on the Nintendo. Um, whoever won, I got to either stay up later instead of going to bed, or, you know, he didn't really win anything because it was I went to bed at normal time if he won. But then when I got the Game Boy, it became our bonding thing was playing Tetris and betting each other for things like extra dessert, stay up late, don't have to do a chore till the next day kind of thing if I could beat him. Mm-hmm. Well, what, what's like some of your uh, best Game Boy memories, Steps? Oh, wow. Oh, I was just going to say Mighty Bomb Jack. Nice. I picked oh. that up, actually. <laughs> That's fantastic. Now, see... This is where I differ from you guys. I was a whatever-my-dad-bought kind of kid. My dad's as big, if not bigger, of a nerd than I am. Video games, comics, all that stuff. So when I was five, my dad bought a an NES at a flea market. He got it, and we played it all the time, but he liked to buy games that were way over my head. Like, I can't even remember some of them. I want to say it was like Dragon Quest. Dragon Warrior. Dragon Warrior, yep. Yeah, which and became five, Final Fantasy. I'm five years old. I'm not. I'm not doing that. I played Duck Hunt right. and Super Mario Brothers a lot, and then he sold that and got a Sega, and that's what we had forever. I a, ma- had, a Master System? No, just a Sega Genesis. Oh, okay, yeah. cool. He got one of those, and that's what we had forever. I never had a Super Nintendo. I never had an N64. I went straight from the Sega Genesis to the PlayStation, and that was a. A massive jump, but I, I never even had a Game Boy. I I had it one time because I borrowed it from a friend so I could play Pokemon. 
I had to play Pokemon, <laughs> and so I got that. But that was about it. I had a I had a Sega Nomad. Yeah. Oh, oh cool. yeah. Yeah, I, I had a Nomad for a while, and it, that was a lot of fun. But that was my only experience with handheld systems, really, as a kid. I remember getting the Game Gear and being thoroughly unimpressed. I mean, it was a color screen. Mm-hmm. It had great graphics, but it ran on six AA batteries that died about every 20 minutes. Yeah. But the games looked great. You just couldn't keep the darn thing on yeah. as a portable. I mean, you had to keep it plugged into the wall. You might as well have just jumped on the Genesis. Yeah. So the yeah. Game Boy, man, that, that changed handheld gaming for everybody. Up until then, it was those, you know, I remember them with fondness, but I'm sure some people don't. Those L- LCD displayed um, Tiger games for everything that were, you know, six sticks put together in a crude figure throwing a round ball at either a sport or an enemy, depending on what skin they put on the outside. <laughs> depending yeah. on which game. Yeah, I remember yeah. the Castlevania 2, Simon's Quest 1, where you got the LCD figure, you know, two-frame animation of whipping the enemy. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you, the coolest Nintendo product I ever got was not a handheld, and it wasn't a console. One Christmas, I open up uh, this this box, this square box, and I'd been looking at it, and it was for me, and I I always thought it was something that was meant for my mom because it looked like a jewelry box. And Christmas came around, and I opened it, and it just said Star Fox on the top. And I opened it up, and it had headphones, and you put the watch on, and you plugged the headphones in, and you could play Star Fox on your wrist. Wow. Wow. And I've never seen one sold retroactively. I've never seen one again. But I remember for many years until the battery died, I had a Star Fox game you could play on your watch, on your wrist. Cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. So what do you think about gaming? At least to me, it seems like it's trying to make a small retro turn back. Um, A lot of the simpler games, like Undertale, is massive. Yeah. Uh, Terraria. Yeah, Terraria, Minecraft, games like that that seem to be taking a simpler approach. Going back to stuff like that, um, why do you think the games are kind of headed back that way a little bit to a little bit simpler, better storytelling to me, it seems? Well, I think, I think you, reach a, you reach a point with game design where it, it becomes diminishing returns. You know, we're at a point now where you go from uh, something like a PS3 or Xbox 360 to a PS4, Xbox One, there is some noticeable fidelity change in terms of the graphics. Um, you know, there's a big leap between 16-bit and 32-bit, like the PlayStation, Saturn, etc., because obviously everything jumped from 2D to 3D, and then there's a noticeable jump between that generation and PS2, Xbox, GameCube, because suddenly... They've got way more polygons to work with. The models right. look way better. And then again, a noticeable jump from there to PS3. You know, because if you, if you look at something like the original Siphon Shelter, for example, uh, and then you compare that to something like the reboot of Shinobi on the PS2, and then you compare that to something like even, even something earlier on the PS3, like Infamous, or something like that, there's a pretty big jump between yeah. each of those steps. Well, then you look at something like Infamous, and now you look at something on the PS4. I think now that we're 
a couple, three years into this generation, you're only starting to see games, new stuff like, like uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, for example, that's just coming out, that really looks like it's head and shoulders above what was last generation. Yeah. So I think you right. start to see that, that point of diminishing returns where there's only so much um, horsepower you can, you can get out of the console, and there's only so much development time and money that, that big AAA developers can uh, dedicate to these kinds of games, and you're all, they're always taking a huge risk because you're talking about uh, so many hundreds of man hours that they put into this thing. Uh, and is it going to sell? And Plus the budget. Sell? I mean, most games today cost more than – there are games that cost more than, you know, an Avengers movie to make at this point. Yeah. Absolutely. There's and like I think um, you're talking about hundreds of man hours of production, and then they're still selling it at $60 retail. Right. You know, that, that retail price really hasn't changed since, say, the early PlayStation days, you know, when they were kind of 50 to $60 retail for most things. Um, and so either they're really optimizing the tools for doing that because you've got engines like Unreal and Unity and... and uh, Havoc, like and yeah. Yeah. Uh, but again, you know, you're, you're taking a big risk with that because you've got all these man hours into the project and it has to sell and it has to meet expectations. You know, you hear about uh, a game like the Tomb Raider reboot that sold, you know, however many million copies and the publisher considered it a failure because it didn't sell up to their expectations. You know, and hmm. so I think, I think the, the rise of indie games has to do with, number one, you've got, you've got, that's a way for small uh, publishers and designers to get in at a relatively low cost. Right. Um, you've got guys like me and like us who are a little bit older, um, maybe a little bit nostalgic for some of the games that we played as kids, eight and sixteen bit kind of thing. And uh, it's fun to go back and revisit those games, but you also want to have new experiences. And so uh, that's why things like um, like Shovel Knight or Freedom Planet or Cave Story or Terraria, you know, kind of resonate. Um, right. With, you know, with especially with like guys like me, you know, I'm, I'm going to be 40 here in a couple of months, and you know, some of the most fun that I've had with gaming over the last few years has been sort of modern retro-styled indie games. You know, I I uh, I played through uh, Shovel Knight. I started this thing like three three years ago where I buy an indie game on my Wii U, and on um, on the first day of the year, January 1st. And I play it that day and see how far I can get. And so the first time I did that, I bought Shovel Knight that morning, and I spent the whole day playing it. Um, and wow. I finished it by something like 8 or 8.30 that night. Uh, and it was a fantastic experience. And I've gone back to it a couple times, you know, here and there since then. And I'm looking forward to going back to it again uh, here when it comes out, once I actually am able to get a Switch. Um, so I can play through it again with this new um, this new campaign that they're doing. I yeah. can't remember the, the subtitle of it, but with the, the new character that they're introducing. Yeah. Uh, and then the year after that, um, last year I did Freedom Planet, and that's a much longer game, so I didn't get through it all in one day, but uh, fantastic experience. And then um, just here back in January, I started with Axiom Verge and played through that on the Wii U. A lot of people rave, rave about that game. I can buy it on the Xbox Arcade. Yeah, so. it is fantastic. If you like Super Metroid 
or that kind of game, you know, Super Metroid, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, or like any of the uh, Game Boy Advance Castlevania games, it, it's, I can't recommend it enough. And the soundtrack is phenomenal. I'm actually about this close from uh, ordering the soundtrack on vinyl. Nice. It's so good. Oh, no. Oh, he brought have it either of you, uh Have either of you um, played the, the Double Dragon 4? That just came out that actually looks like Double Dragon and Double Dragon 2 from the NES. Oh, nice. I haven't. No, me either. Yeah, it, it released. It wasn't highly, highly like, publicized, but I, I don't know if it's on Xbox, but I know you can get it. And it, it's a true sequel, but it is done completely in the graphic style of the first two games on the NES. It actually looks just like Double Dragon 2, The Revenge. Yeah, I had a friend who bought it, um, I think, because it, it's on Steam and PS4, I want to say, and I think he bought it for his PS4. And there you go, Steps, you can get it. I can't yeah. get it on either yeah. platform. <laughs> he, he, he said it was okay. He, he didn't think it was that great. Um, and I've kind of heard a lot of people that you know, it's kind of meh, that, you know, they didn't really get it. Really? Or, or, or it didn't really, like, it just felt like, they, they kind of say that it felt like, Somebody took Double Dragon 2 and just made it widescreen, added more characters and more moves, and, hmm. you know, fresh coat of paint kind of a thing. See that? Go ahead, go ahead Seth. Sorry. I said, oh, I just said interesting. That's... Yeah, I just knew it had released, and I hadn't seen it come, come by on the Xbox store, so I didn't know if it was, you know, that many platforms across, but I hope it's better than the tepid reviews it's getting. Yeah. Because... See. I just pulled it up real quick. Double Dragon Four. Yeah, it's on the PS4 store. I'm trying to see how much it is. I think it launched oh, it it six ninety nine on Steam. Yes, yeah, seven ninety nine it seems. You know it's what got, though, that's not bad. No, it's not bad. And it's got three out of five stars on the store, so it can't be terrible. That's not true. Yeah, I played it's probably games. still fun to play. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've played games with higher ratings than that and gone, how? What happened? <laughs> it's not that good. Yeah, but I have found myself just sitting down and enjoying more simple games, more indie games recently than when I sit down and play, you know, the AAA titles. Um, which is hard to say right this moment because I finally got a PS4. I'm playing through The Last of Us, which has been amazing. Um, Resident Evil 7, I enjoyed that a lot. But before <laughs> those two games... There wasn't a lot of games that I got to play through where the story got a hold of me, and it was just super fun to just sit down and play. Undertale is that way for me. I love the fighting system, just how different it is. I don't know if either of you have gotten to play Undertale at all. Not yet. It's on my radar, though. You should look look it up on YouTube, and the fighting system in it is just... It's something I don't even know how to explain, but it's a lot of fun. Um, The Binding of Isaac. I did play that. Yeah. That's a lot Did of fun. Play, I love, I love those old played, kind of bullet hell kind of games. Oh, yeah. Have you guys played Thomas Was Alone? No, I've heard of it, but I've, I haven't had to play it. That's an interesting little game. Yeah. Um, you mentioned The Binding of Isaac. Uh, I know that's coming to the Switch, and that's actually going to be a physical release, so I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. And um, unlike a lot of the modern games, that one's actually going to have a, uh, what they said it was a 20-page manual. Wow. Wow. It's like it's the same size and shape as the NES manual, so that's kind nice. of a neat throwback. 
That's, that's, that's something we don't get very often anymore is an actual manual for a game. Now they yeah, just no kind of print some stuff on the inside of the cover art and give you a website to go to if you want to read through something, but that's about it. Yeah, yeah you, talked about the, you talked about the physical release of The Binding of Isaac, so I've got a question that I ask quite a few people because it interests me a lot. Do you think that we'll ever move away from physical releases? Do you think eventually game companies will stop spending the money on actual physical production and move to downloads? Because, I mean, I download most of my games just out of, I don't have time to go to GameStop a lot. i got two kids, work, doing this stuff. Usually I'll just set it to download a game and I'll move on. Um, do you think more companies will start moving towards that? I think, you're, yeah, I think that's going to start to become more and more of a, more and more of a push from the industry. Um, because if you look at what publishers have done where, you know, they can start to put things out uh, digitally, uh, especially with licensed content, you know, they put something out, somebody makes an Avengers game or a Batman game or whatever, and that gets out there, then when that license is up, they can pull it from the store and, you know, then there's no, they don't have to worry about, um, you know, that licensing, any, any issues with the licensing, I should say. Um, right. For myself as a collector, um, I, I don't want to see physical media go away because I like that, that whole tactile experience of, of, of putting the, the game in the system and playing it, you know, whether it's a cartridge or a disc or a game card like in a, like in a DS or the upcoming Switch. Um, and, you know, I appreciate that. I appreciate the collection aspect of it. And uh, I also enjoy like, going out and hunting for games you know, pawn shops and, and Goodwill and stuff like that, and, and or like going to GameStop or mom-and-pop shops and stuff and, and finding, you know, games that either, you know, maybe running across something I didn't know about or, you know, hey, a friend told me about this game and now I want to go see if I can find a copy, you know, that kind of a thing. And that's, for me, that's part of the experience. Right. So my hope is that publishers will always have or that most publishers that can afford to do it will, will try to keep at least a small um, physical game presence available. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it, it's coming. You know, the, Microsoft tried to do that with the Xbox One, uh, you know, when it was leading up to the release of it, and it was such a huge backlash um, of people that said no. Um, but, of course, everybody's already used to that with services like Steam and GOG on PC. Right. Uh, and, you know, I think console gamers aren't used to that yet. But now, you know, Xbox One and I believe PS4 as well, you put the disc in and it installs to the hard drive. And then, as far as I know, you don't use the disc again. Um, Actually, I think it's a licensing DRM thing, I know, with the Xbox, because... You hard install the game and it'll take up all the gigabytes of if you had just downloaded it. It's the same, but if you try to play it, it'll ask if you own the product until you put the disc in. So it's not even, you know, uh, couldn't read game file, couldn't, it's always, it's all, uh, do you own this game? And then it actually had one of the options is to put you into the Xbox store. So I think the only, the only, yeah, I think the disc is literally just has the DRM code in it that allows you to play it. Because a lot of games, well, a lot of games when you download the demo, you have to download the entire game size file. I know Steps, you had an Xbox One, so they'll give you a demo, and it may only be you know one level of the game, but you still have to download 
the entire 35 gigabytes, yeah, yeah, for the whole thing. Oh. And yeah, it only they want gives you, you access that button to at the, the end to purchase full game. They want to make it easy. You hit the button, you get to keep going, but I don't want to right, wait yeah, for three yeah, hours yeah, while you yeah. download the whole game. Yeah, it kind of functions as what the disc is. It's basically you'll download a 35 gigabyte game for a 20 minute demo. And then, you know, all that's holding back is that, like, when you buy a, a Microsoft product for your computer and you have to put that key in on the back of the case, that's all it is. It's the digital key. They just, you know, half turn it in the lock and you got to pay for them to finish turning it. So I think if they did go away from physical media, that the fifty nine ninety nine price point would be an issue for a lot of people because why am I paying you $60? But we do it now. For, I, know, I know we do, but I mean... If that was the only way, I'm sure there could be a push on the consumer, a pushback, like, you know, why am I paying you fifty nine ninety nine for a program that costs you nothing to give to me? You know, I mean, I know it costs them to build it, but, you know, it'll be hard to justify the, like, I mean, the Switch, I think, may be the closest thing, because isn't it basically just the memory card that you stick in your camera now? Is is what they're giving you? It's like an SD card. It's not even like a... It's a form of an SD card, kind of. Yeah, that, that's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's the closest, I guess, to a departure. I mean, if it's even less complex than the DS cartridges, which my daughter has one, I mean, then they're actually whittling down almost to what you stick in a camera so you can take a picture to put your games on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah and I guess, you know, if, if they want to move away from optical media to that kind of a thing, you know, I'm not going to say Nintendo's leading the way with that. I mean, they are, but um, I'm not sure that Microsoft and Sony are going to follow. Um, right. That, that could be an ideal way to continue to provide a, a physical game experience relatively inexpensively, um, yeah. you know, without having to rely on uh, the optical media and, you know, less moving parts, so to speak, that they have to deal with. I say, yeah, you're talking about reducing the size. You don't have to have a hard drive, or not a hard drive. You don't have to have the disk drive. You don't have right. to worry about it malfunctioning. I mean, you get your own set of circumstances when it comes to cartridges, but, I mean, it's it's a lot easier to deal with than hoping that all the moving parts never go bad if it happens to get knocked over or anything crazy like that. And how malevolently genius to make a game that small and then market it to children. Oh, yeah. You know how many, you know kids are going to lose every game they have and it's going to have to be rebought. Well, see, but they came out with this brilliant little marketing thing where if you'll buy the cute little carrying case, it holds all your games. There you go. (laughs) I actually want the case that comes with the collector's edition of Breath of the Wild. I don't know if you've seen it. If you haven't, you should Google it. It looks amazing. Yeah. I think I think that edition is like a hundred or a hundred and ten dollars. You get the game, you get the soundtrack, a map, that carrying case, and I think there was one other thing. I can't remember. Yeah, there's like the collector limited edition, and then the math, what they call the master edition, which comes in this large black sort of cube box, yeah. and that has this sort of uh, nice little um, statuette, I guess, of the master sword, kind of. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's cool. cool. Yeah, I remember that one. That was cool. That was. So you're. you're, Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh no, I was going to talk about his other Twitter. If you're not done with that, then you go right ahead. No, I would love to hear about that. I could talk about the Switch coming out for hours. We would be here forever. Yep. (laughs) Only what two weeks? See, next week would be the first. Then. So two and a half, three weeks. 
Yeah, next Friday. Yeah, it's March 3rd, right? Something like that. Jeez, comes so fast. Yeah, it's a week from... Is it next Friday already? Yeah, it's next Friday already. Wow. That's insane. Seems so far away when they announced it. Now I'm like, oh, look, it's coming in a week. Right. But anyway, go ahead, Jim. So your other Twitter is actually what we started talking about, uh, the one about DOS Metal. And, oh. right, and you're talking to both of us. Uh, you know, we, we started this a little over a month ago together, and we had a kind of cool connection like two weeks ago. Um, Steps and his wife Lexi have the coolest thing ever. She has Will You... No. Carrie. Yeah, oh, you have I, Will You. Right. See. I've got Will You tattooed on my arm, and my wife has Carry Me Down tattooed across her collarbone. Oh. Yeah, and nice. we got we got married to My Heartstrings Come Undone by Demon Hunter. Oh. Um, they are they're her favorite band, and they are definitely in my top five. Top five. I can't five. get enough of those guys. Yep. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So, I've seen them like three times. Is yeah, that Twitter? Uh, do, do you review metal music with that one? Is that? Um, yeah, I used to. Um, I've got a blog that I've been running for a number of years. I've kind of neglected it the last couple of years, but I used to do pretty consistent music reviews. And actually, I used to do reviews on my old YouTube channel. Uh, I stopped doing that a while ago and just kind of focused on like vinyl collection videos. Um, so you know, when I would get new records or whatever, I would kind of show them off. And, because a lot of times I like to buy the ones that are you know, the color edition or the, um, the see-through or things like that or yeah. what have you. So I like to show that stuff off. I haven't made one for a little while. Uh, I want to get back to it. Now that I've got a decent webcam and a better laptop, I actually get back to doing that. Yeah. So that would be one of the things I want to ramp up again, too, is, you know, with that YouTube channel, focus on getting back to vinyl collection and then possibly getting back to music reviews. Cool. Yeah, so what's yeah, your what, what's what's your favorite band of all time then for metal? My favorite band is Tourniquet. Dude, wow. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, now I know what I'll be listening to later tonight. Man, I haven't thought about them in forever. I know, oh. right? You saw my eyes light up like, holy yes, cow. Yes. That'll, that'll be what I'm listening to later. later. The uh, other day, me and Jay were just going through bands and that's all I did for the rest of the day was listen to music because it had been so long since I heard some of the bands we brought up. and Yeah, now I'm going to be listening to Tourniquet. So thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. It's going to be a good time. Yeah, after we talked, I actually dug out my old Project 86 stuff and started listening to that again. And oh, yeah. My old uh, Living Sacrifice and Becoming the Archetype. and Wow, we talked about Haste today, and that was the first one I actually Pressure pulled back out. I was like, yeah. yup. What was the one from uh, Living Sacrifice? It was Hammer and the Nail. Hammer and the Nail. and A hammering process, that's it. Hammering process. Good album. Oh, yeah. First Living Sacrifice. It was with Living Sacrifice. Oh, wow. Living Sacrifice opened for Demon Hunter, and the two back-to-back, I didn't know what to do with myself. That was an amazing night. That would have been awesome. I was worn out. Now, see, I saw Demon Hunter for the Storm the Gates of Hell tour, and they had Living Sacrifice with them, mm-hmm. 
And when they did 16, he came out. Mm -hmm. And they did it together. And, oh. (laughs) That's cool. I mean, I was a heathen until I met my wife. I didn't start, I didn't get into anything church-related until I was like 20, 21. And I grew up a, a downtown Boston punker. I mean, blue hair, like 12 inches off the head, face full of metal, and, you know. Hey, I went I still to church as a full of metal. Me too. I just hide it well. And like, you know, I mean, I didn't go to church. My mom went when I was a kid, and but once I hit high school, I didn't go and had a really rough go of it and got really into like metal music. But like, Living Sacrifice, I listened to before I even knew they were a Christian band because I heard the song Reject and was like, Oh, this is the goodness. Like, yeah. so this is the good stuff right here. Yeah, and I actually got to see them, uh, I think it was right before that album hit the, hit the shelves, either right before or right after, uh, at Cornerstone 97. And that was one of the most insane sets I've ever seen. I always wanted to go. Me and Jay talked about this, too. I always wanted to go and never got a chance to go. I don't even think they do it anymore, so it's kind of sad. No, they quit doing it here about three or four years ago. And, no! Uh, yeah, that was one of the one of the heaviest concerts I've ever been to. They, mm-hmm. I mean, Jason Truby was jumping all over the stage and pulling oh, yeah. mm. around like a madman, and it was insane. It was awesome. I think that one of the heaviest shows I ever went to was let's see, there was War of Ages, Becoming mm. the Archetype, and Demon Hunter, just back to back to back, and it just didn't stop. Like. It almost seemed like there was not even a rest between the sets. I don't know how they were doing it, but it was crazy. It That's was awesome. A good show, and by the end of it, I don't know if you guys like to get into the mosh pits, but I have a lot of fun in them. And by the end of it, even I'm just sitting against the wall going, I'm done. I, I can't get up. I, <laughs> going. Yes, I gotta sit down. I like to do the mosh pitting, to quote an old Adam Sandler sketch. But no, um... Man, I am the kid who had to leave a Pantera concert early because in the middle of five minutes alone, somebody crowd surfing caught me in the forehead with their Doc Martin. And the next thing I remember is I was in the car like, they didn't do Cemetery Gates yet. We'll be fine. I'm fine. I want to go back in. And then, uh, funny story on that, on mosh pitting. And then, you know... Um, I, I I talk a lot, but I, I could talk all night about concert experiences because I actually was in a punk and hardcore band. And no, I won't mention it every episode. I know Steps is probably sick of hearing that. I was in a band, but um, <laughs> but I went to um, a downset concert. Oh yeah, um, I love them. I always have. They were the reason why I got into rapcore for a long time. And it was them, a band called Earth Crisis. Oh, yeah. who were like preachy straight edge vegans and then uh, we ended up playing a show with them at one point and they are that preachy when they're not playing they're real yeah they're a joy and a pleasure to sit next to and then um i think it was like sick of it all had come down from new york and Madball. oh man um, i pitted for that whole show right didn't touch a drop of alcohol and this was before I had a license, so my dad had to come into Providence and pick us all up and drive us back to Massachusetts. And so he was already in a bad mood because he had to drive to Providence and pick us up. 
And the whole way home, every time we stopped at a stoplight, the motion of it, after having done what I had done for not four hours straight, every time he stopped the car, I puked. And, and to this day, he is convinced that I spent the whole time drinking, and I did not drink a drop. But every stoplight from Providence, Rhode Island to Taunton, Massachusetts, every time that car went to stop, I was like, oh, God, and then out the side. Oh, I had pitted myself to exertion. Wow. Yeah, one of the first concerts I ever got to go to was my dad. <clears throat> Long story short, I was getting into to music and metal that my parents didn't like. They're very strict Southern Baptist. They tried to get me away from it and introduced me to bands that I still listen to this day, the ones we're talking about now. But my dad took me to a Skillet concert and thought maybe I'd like that, which... I did. I I think I've seen Skillet six or seven times live. They're, They're great awesome. live, yeah. They are. They're okay. amazing. And, you know, that was fun. And then I wanted to go see Living Sacrifice. And my dad is not the biggest metal fan in the world. He doesn't mind it, especially if they're they're good guys. So he, uh, I was like, take me to this show. And he was like, he's like, what kind of music is it? Nah, don't worry about that. Let's just go to the show. <laughs> It'll be good. <laughs> be fun. Uh, the band that opened for him was a band called Stavesaker. I don't know if you remember them. Oh, I have one of their CDs, dude. Yeah. They're I was awesome. listening to their first one the other day. I say, I haven't thought about this story in a long time. That will be added to Tourniquet. I will now be listening to them and Tourniquet for the rest of the night. But it was them and then Living Sacrifice. And my dad loved Stavesaker. And then Living Sacrifice came out. And I'm like, you know, I'm sorry. It's about to get really, really loud in here. <laughs> and they, they went after it and God bless my dad. He loved it and had a good time. But afterwards, he was like, how can you hear? Well, I can't at the moment, but it'll come back. It's fine. Yeah, I know I've permanently damaged myself with concerts. Um, we saw, the last time I saw Skillet was before Lacey left Flyleaf. And it was Skillet, Flyleaf, and someone else. And let me tell you, that little girl, and I don't mean that demeaningly. She's three foot five. That little girl is amazing live. She is a tiny ball of power. They, they're amazing. I still have Memento Mori on frequent replay. They, they put out a bonus disc if you bought it early, and it's got five or six songs on it that came extra. And if you guys like Flyleaf, I highly recommend looking up the song Breaks Your Knees. Yeah, that's the one you told me to look up the other day. I did look up. Oh, my gosh, what a great song. Very good. Such a good, deep message for looking forward to what we get when we take our last breath as believers. Like, it's just, and it's eloquently written. I can't do, and my wife, she rolls her eyes because we have a station down here. I'm not going to put them on blast, but... It's, here's five different versions in an hour of the same praise and worship song. And that's the only Christian station we have down here, pretty much. We have one, and they only play good stuff on Saturdays from, like, six to eight. And then the rest of it's the same. And I can't do praise and worship, but the stuff that we're talking about has moved me more than once. Like, to where I've had to pull the car over, because the stuff we listen to goes a lot deeper. And... Yeah, there are certain songs. I know um, Stitches. Um, I have uh, a brother who who's decided to become a staunch atheist, 
And there was like something about the words to that song that because I didn't know how to talk to him. And that's what that whole song's about. And the first time I heard that song, I literally had to pull the car over because I, I just thought about what he was going through with that and giving up on things and you know just deciding to believe that there's nothing. And you know, it really hit me. Well, I hate to be the party pooper. Don't, don't hate me. But we are out of time, guys. What? What? I'm Every sorry. party has a poopa, and a poopa is a you party pooper. <laughs> George Bonds. Yeah, I just, I just showed my age. Yeah, that's a Steve Martin movie from 20 years ago. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Father of the Bride 2. Martin Short. Martin Short is brilliant in it. He plays oh, yeah. a gay fashion designer. It is amazing. <laughs> I have to check that out. But, but yeah. hey, man, Josh, it was fun. Uh, when the Switch comes out, we got to have you back on if you can get your hands yeah. on it. I know you and Step will definitely have a lot to talk about, and I can just sit back and think about how Nintendo just isn't on my radar yet again. Oh. Hopefully the Switch will change that. I hope it'll put them back on the map for a lot of people. I think it will. Me too. Me too. I, I really do. I really do. The Wii and the Wii U, they kind of just lost me, but... I think they you shouldn't know. have showed the cow milking game at the treehouse thing, but that's okay. <laughs> it did not help to not solidify my case at all. <laughs> that's what I was thinking while I'm watching. I'm like, this is cool, this is cool, and they're milking a cow. Why? Nintendo, are you trying to stab yourself in the back? So a $300 portable tablet where I can play different variations of even weirder Wii Sports. That was my impression. So hopefully they can change that. You know? You thought you felt awkward playing golf in your living room. <laughs> Watch this. <laughs> Honey, what are you doing? I promise I'm just milking a cow. <laughs> oh. On that note, Josh, it's been awesome talking to you. Like, Most you definitely. Yeah, yeah thanks for having me. Back. Yes. Appreciate it. Yeah. Well, all right, guys, this has been the Happy Haven. As always, I am... Gnarly Canary and my stalwart co-host. This is the Geek Steps. You can find us on buildingabetternerd.com. Of course, you can look up the Happy Haven on iTunes, Stitchers, and SoundCloud. And you can find Mr. Josh Diekman on uh, Twitter at... Uh, you can your... either follow Metal Pro. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's kind of my general personal account for music, gaming, politics, whatever. And then if you want just gaming stuff, follow at Game Boy Guru. Uh, 